I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19 today. So by now you should have found yourself to Luke 6. And, and you noticed that when we started the sermon, you couldn't hear me. And the reason that you couldn't hear me was the power on my mic wasn't on. So I had to flip a switch in order for you to hear. And without the power, there's no way for you to hear. I just want you to hold on to that moment as we go through this passage because the, the passage is all about prayer and power. Now, power is a big issue. I mean, we're discussing power every day today. Uh, we're, we're talking about Oh, these people are being manipulated. Those people have an agenda. Of course, there are people with agendas. We know that. And we're always wondering who has the power and whose power are we going to submit ourselves to or even are we going to submit ourselves to power. It's about power, power, power. Human beings are hungry for power. They want to be self-determined. They want the power to make their own decisions and everything. So here's the question for you this morning. Do you want power? Do you want the power to, to be self-determined, to make your own decision? And if you do, what does the Scripture have to say about that? Now, we're in chapter 6 of Luke, and there's a progression that we've gone through through Luke. Uh, Jesus Christ is revealing himself. He's chosen a couple disciples. They're walking around with him. He's making hints that he's the Messiah. Uh, and there's some tension there's a growing tension between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, in particular between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. The last time we found out that the Pharisees were filled with fury at what Jesus was doing. All the things he was doing were good, but they, he wasn't doing them according to their traditions and their understandings, and now they're plotting as to what they're going to do about them. So the... Uh, the important thing for us to understand about where we are in Luke is that Jesus is challenging all of their traditions. He's causing them to examine. Uh, he's, he's defying uh, the set order of things. And he, he wants them to compare what they're doing to the Scriptures. Now, this is a, a valid position for Jesus to be in because these men that he's, he's challenging are supposed to be the spiritual leaders. That, 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 now, there's this curious mix of politics and leadership back then, but these people are supposed to be the head of the church, the head of God's people. And so Jesus is constantly going up against them. Of, are you really? If you're the head of God's people, are you doing what the Word says? So meanwhile, the crowds are growing. He's attracting a lot of attention, mostly by virtue of the signs and the wonders. And as the crowds grow, uh, we, we, as we're going to find out this morning, the crowds consist of Jews and Gentiles. Not, it's not just the Jews that are coming, but he's beginning to attract the attention of all the people in the, in the Mideast region there. So as the crowds grow and the diversity grows, watch this, expectations are growing as well. And ultimately, that's going to be a point of tension as well. So our passage today shows us uh, two primary characteristics of Jesus' walk here on earth while he was here ministering. And the first one is prayer. And uh, we're going to see his prayer, 
and his habits in prayer in verses 12 through 16. And the second one is power. And we're going to see the power that results from the prayer in verses 17 through 19. So let's take a look at how Jesus prayed. Um, and, and, and again, keep this in context. Uh, this is Jesus's response to this growing criticism. I mean, the last thing we heard about the Pharisees, they're trying to figure out what to do with them, and they're upset with them. So here's Jesus's response. Here's what he does. Uh, and, and, you know, it's counterintuitive uh, because we would naturally think that maybe this is a time to defend ourselves. This is a time to assert ourselves. Uh, this might be a time, if we want to do things in a godly way, uh, to start sh throwing scripture at folks and reminding them of what God says and everything. Uh, but here's what Jesus does with his growing opposition, knowing, knowing that eventually they were going to kill him. So, verse 12. In these days... Uh, he went out to the mountain. Uh, again, Luke is vague. He's probably praying loo playing loose with the chronology here. We don't know exactly what time this happened. We don't know exactly where this mountain is. Traditionally, it's the Mount of the Beatitudes. I'll have a picture of the Mount of Beatitudes. I was there in 2016 behind a sermon on this Wednesday. So he goes out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. That's a lot of prayer. And it, it might seem like a lot of prayer to those of us that think that maybe there needs to be a bit more action involved in what Jesus is doing. So why, why is there so much prayer? Why all night long? Uh, why is this the response to what's happening to Jesus? Well, we see a pattern in Jesus's life. And we see hints of this pattern from time to time. One of them is in Luke 18, verse 1. And, and, and again, uh, he's talking to his disciples here. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And the parable he tells us after this is about the persistent widow that keeps on going back to the judge. And the object of the prayer, parable, what Jesus is trying to say, is you should always be in an attitude of prayer. There's, prayer should be an integral part of your life. Uh, so we see that in Luke 18. In John 5, uh, we see this little incident, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Watch out. Only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, we're talking about a different situation, a different application, and a different context, but Jesus lays the groundwork here for only doing what the Father does, which means that when he prays, he's only doing what the Father does, what he sees the Father does. The Son does whatever the Father does, and the Son prays a lot. And we're going to have to give this some thought as we go forward. Uh, we see another instance in John 12, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me himself, given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. God tells him what to say. God tells him what to, what to speak, and that applies to his prayers as well. 
So if we understand that, we probably need to ask ourselves this question. Why does Jesus need to pray? I mean, he's one with the Father. Uh, if we want to get deep into theology, he's united with the Father. He and the Father are one. He'll tell us that in, in John 15. So if he's, he's the Father and he's united with the Father, why pray? Well, we should have picked up two points by now about why Jesus prays. Number one, it's a form of communion. Now, when we say communion, we have a tendency to think about the sacrament, the communion. We're all sitting in our seats. We're passing juice. We're passing bread. Uh, and, and, and that's certainly a valid way to think about communion. But that sacrament of communion is a symbol. It is representative of the, the relationship, the intimate relationship we have with our Father. So communion is a deep, intimate sharing of hearts. It's striving to become one. So Jesus prays to show us the communion that he has with his Father, to show us the intimacy of their relationship, not so that Jesus can brag about being one with the Father, but so that we can understand what our goal is to become one with him and one with each other as he's one with the Father. And understanding that relationship requires that level of communion. So Jesus prays uh, in times of trouble. He prays in times of blessing. He frequently prays all night long to show us what communion looks like. And that's our second point. It's communion, and Jesus is setting the template. He's making an example of how this is supposed to work. So if, if we are his disciples, we're going to be like him. And, and I think in, in today's world, maybe even particularly right now, I, I think there, there, there may be people in the church that have lost uh, their concept of what a disciple is. Uh, so, you know, what, what is this? You know, people, I hear things like, you don't have to do anything. Uh, it's Jesus plus nothing. Uh, we just have to be. We have to understand who we are. And then we'll have an intimate walk with him. We'll be disciples. Well, that isn't the way Jesus understood the term disciple. That's not the way the first century Jews would have understood the term disciple. And the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, I hear this frequently as well, Jesus will take you the way you are. He will. There's enough truth to that 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 sounds uh, pretty attractive. But the reality of the matter is Jesus will take you the way you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, but he's not going to leave you there. The object of salvation is transformation. The object of the transformation is a witness to the world to see that we have changed, that we've become more like him. And so, so the idea of being a disciple is to be more like him. And, and we find that out in the next verse. And when day came, he called his disciples. He called the people that have been following him, the people that, that uh, at, at the initial blush uh, are receiving what he has to say. And disciples were students. Uh, now, they were kind of students, but it's a lot more than, uh, you know, I have Mr. Yi in my uh, geometry class, and I meet with him at between 10 and 
and 1045. So uh, disciples were students, but they were much more. They were expected to learn from their teacher, but the relationship with their teacher went much deeper. They were not, they, they were not just supposed to learn from him, but they were supposed to follow him. They were supposed to learn how he lived. They were supposed to learn how he, he got through life, and they were supposed to become like him. So a disciple is supposed to become like him. A disciple of Christ is supposed to become like him. And so he calls his disciples to him, and, and, and here's what happens, and, and chooses from them 12, whom he named apostles. Uh, so we have the people that are following him. He brings them together after praying all night long, and he says, I'm going to single out 12 of you to be apostles. Now, we see that as a title. Um, it's a word that wasn't used a whole lot in the first century, so it has particular meaning, and what it means is messengers. It means people that, that bear the message. It means people that are testifiers. It means people that bear the message of the gospel. So he's chosen 12. He's shown them first what a disciple should look like, he should be praying the way Jesus does. And then he singles out 12 of them. And uh, you know this number 12 is significant? If we take a look at the makeup of the crowd, uh, we have 12 apostles. Kind of bears an echo of the 12 tribes. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism here. Because we have the 12 apostles, we have the disciples, and then we have the multitude. And so some people think that the 12 apostles are a... Uh, regeneration of the church, the 12 tribes. Uh, this is the new church. Some people think that. Uh, and those people that think that also think that the rest of the disciples that he's chosen from are, represent the church and that the multitude represents the world. So you have the leaders of the church, the church, and the world. You can make of that what you like. Uh, uh, Jesus makes these choices. Uh, there, there are more similarities. There's a new Israel. They're being led out of sin, not led out of Egypt. They're being led to heaven, not to the promised land. It's kind of like the next step for God's people. But I want you to look at the people that he's chosen. Watch this. Verse 14. He chose Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Look at this group of people. There, there are maybe one or two authentic leaders in there, maybe, but for the most part, they're a group of ordinary guys. I mean, they're fishermen and tax collectors and uh, you know, the lawyer, scribes types of things. There, there, and, and very few of these 12 would leave a permanent mark upon the church. But Jesus, through them, changed the world. And, and I want you to look very closely at the list because one of the things that Jesus does is he takes not just ordinary people, but Jesus chooses the one who betray him. Jesus chose Judas, the one who would betray him. Knowing, knowing that Judas would betray him, his dedication to what he's called to do 
And the walk that he's called to walk is so complete that he welcomes his betrayer into the inner circle. Twelve ordinary men, one of them with an evil heart. What could God do with ordinary people? There was a scientist named Richard Feynman, uh, won the Nobel Prize in 1965 for his works in quantum electrodynamics. I have no idea what that means, okay? But it, to me, it, all it says is smart. So he, he, he worked in these areas of physics and uh, uh, advanced thought. He, he worked in, he, he did pioneering work in the area of nanotechnology, little bitty uh, robots. He did pioneering work in quantum computing, which we're just starting to realize right now. Uh, after, after Feynman got his Nobel Prize, he went back to his high school just to remind himself of where he started. And um, he acted startled at uh, his grades because they weren't great. He didn't, he's not one of these guys that finished with a 4.1. Uh, his grades were average. Uh, he looked up his IQ. And you would think a guy like this would have one of these giant IQs of 175 or so. His IQ was 124. And that's not bad. Uh, that, that, that's good. So he's capable of, of sophisticated thought. But it's certainly nothing that we would consider a genius. He was just an ordinary guy. Matter of fact, he said, if I had known how ordinary I was, I never would have tried all this stuff that I tried. So we can learn a lot about this. Okay? Being an ordinary guy, he didn't let it hold him back. See, you take a look around us. We're ordinary people, just like Richard Feynman. We, we, we have the same capabilities he did. Sometimes I think that being aware of the fact that we're ordinary causes us to hesitate, causes us to think that maybe our contribution isn't that great. Maybe it's not that important. Maybe we can't do what that guy over there is doing or that woman over there is doing or, or we saw somebody on TV or we heard somebody at a conference or a concert or something and they're so much better than I, our contributions don't mean anything. It's a good thing that Richard Feynman didn't let that stop him. He went forward despite his shortcomings, despite his lack of excellence and his work changed the world. So as we look at this list of apostles, these ordinary guys, we should understand that they had the potential to change the world. They did. But you and I have that potential as well. I mean, we've got it all over Richard Feynman, and we have an advantage over him because you and I, like those disciples, have been chosen by God to be his image bearers, chosen by God to be purveyors of the gospel, chosen by God to be vessels of grace and mercy. We've been singled out by God to be his witnesses here on earth. And by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, he's enabled us to do these things. We're called to bring his message to the world, his word, a message of eternal life. God uses ordinary people just like us to do this. I mean, we see it in Lily's family. We see it in that food being distributed out in the parking lot. We all had a part in that. We're all ordinary people. So watch what happens here. Jesus' prayer 
his all-night-long prayer, leads to the choosing of his 12, which led to a new world. I mean, everything changed from those moments on. And it all began with prayer. It began with prayer through the night. And, and through the prayer, Jesus not only communes with the Father and shows us how it's going to be done, but he sets the example for us. He sets the example for us that prayer can lead to amazing things. One of the things that prayer can lead to is power. And that's the second characteristic of Jesus' life. Starting in verse 17, look at this. And he came down with them, watch this, he went up, spent the night in prayer, now he comes down, uh, he, he singled out some people, but his disciples come with him. He came down with them and stood at a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, now, again, look at the makeup of the crowd. We've got the apostles, we've got the disciples, and we have the multitude. And the curious thing about the multitude is they're not just from that area. You know, the area Jesus was in was around Capernaum. Capernaum was another one of those cities that was uh, a crossroads for a number of trade routes. Um, it's why Jesus goes from Nazareth, which is um, at the, the uh, northern tip of the uh, 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 Valley of Armageddon, he, and he moves about 30 miles over to Capernaum. And the reason he moved there is because it's a trade center. And uh, the work he does in Capernaum goes out from Capernaum, and it goes everywhere throughout the entire world. And so now people are coming from Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon uh, were outside of the bounds of, of Israel. Um, they were Gentile cities, uh, situated right about where Lebanon is right now. So Jesus is attracting an incredible diversity of people. Gentiles and Jews are coming. We see the symbolism of the three groups, and here's what they came for. Verse 18, who came to hear him and to be healed of their disease. Now watch, watch the progression. They came to hear him and be healed of their disease. They didn't come to get healed of their diseases and then listen to what he had to say. They came to hear him and be healed. Luke is very purposeful with this. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So we see physical healing. Again, we see spiritual healing. And verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him, and he healed them all. Jesus healed them all. Now, I, I want you to think about this. He healed the disciples, and he healed those who were curious as to what was going on, those who, who just came to see what this Jesus thing was all about. So we need to derive two things out of this and put aside our opinions about whether or not this is about healing or signs and wonders and look at what's happening uh, because Jesus prayed all night long, and now all of a sudden this power is going through him. And the power comes from his relationship with his father. And so we, we, we find out two things immediately. Number one, watch this. It does not necessarily take faith in Christ to receive healing. Not all of those people had faith in Christ. They came to hear him, and he healed them. 
Okay? Some of them undoubtedly did, but uh, we know in the long run, everybody abandons them. Okay? So number one, it doesn't necessarily take faith to receive healing. So we can put aside all those ideas that if we prayed for healing and God didn't heal us, there's something wrong with our faith because it's Jesus who heals, not our faith. And here's the second thing. Something is going on beyond the healing and the deliverance. Well, what is that? Jesus is demonstrating his power and his authority. His power comes from his communion with the Father. And that power affirms his choices of the apostles. It affirms what he is about to say. Because what he's about to say, he's about to go into a sermon. And it's just like the Sermon on the Mount. It may be the Sermon on the Mount. It may be that Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount in a number of different places. But Jesus establishes his presence, establishes his authority to choose his disciples, uh, affirms that authority by this outflowing of power. And just when he's got everybody's attention, he goes into the greatest sermon ever preached, which lays the foundation for the gospel, lays the foundation for his ministry. And it's almost as if he says to this multitude, okay, now, now that you've received a blessing, let me tell you why I came. So the healing, the signs and the wonders are to affirm who he is, to affirm that these 12 that he's chosen as apostles are the 12 that will, that will lead his church. Something much bigger than just signs and wonders is going on. His power comes from his relationship with his father. He came down and put on this spectacular display of the power that he has in his communion with God. The power to change the world. Jesus heals not just for the sake of healing. He heals for the sake of the gospel. He heals for the sake of the power to transform lives and give people new life and a new heart and to introduce people to eternity. He goes up on a mountain, he prays, then he comes down and he does, he does the work. He gives us a pattern to follow. He says, this is how it works. Pray. Pray earnestly. Then go to work. Do the things that you're told to do. So, how do we get that power? Well, I don't think Jesus is trying to tell us that we get the power by saying a prayer every now and then. I don't think that Jesus is saying you can have this power if you call on God when you're in a jam. Now, those things are good, and I believe God answers those prayers, but if we want the power to see lives transformed and hearts being made new, we're talking about a whole different level of power. And I don't think it comes from praying only when we need help or when we want God to do something. It comes by leading a life of prayer, by praying unceasingly, by being in an attitude of prayer throughout an entire day, being aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit, being aware of our desperate need for our Father in heaven, being aware of the sacrifice that was made so that we can lift these prayers up and feel His presence and know His touch and watch the witness flow from us. That's where that type of power comes from. Look, if, if you want to become a runner, if, if you want to compete at the, the Olympic level, 
You have to train. You have to exercise. You don't start at the Olympics. You don't show up at the Olympics and go, I, I, I think I'd like to run uh, this race right here and see if you can win. You, you start at home. You start on your own. And you run. You, you run no matter what the weather you run no matter how you're feeling about running. You run until it becomes the most natural thing that you can do. I think a lot of people think that that Olympic level of prayer will come naturally. And that, that we can pray at the Olympic level without much practice. But our prayers as disciples of Christ have Jesus Christ as their model. He prayed all the time, constantly in touch with the Father. It flowed from him just as natural as the breath flowed from his lungs. C.H. Spurgeon said this, we must pray to pray and continue in prayer that our prayers may continue. In other words, prayers have their own meaning and purpose in and of themselves. That we don't pray to get results, we pray to be in communion with the Father. And we pray that we have the commitment and the deliberation to go forward and continue praying. Well, there's prayer and power. And we find out that they go hand in hand. I mean, we can talk about worldly power all we want. But if we want this heavenly power, we have to know what to do. Just like I had to know to turn my microphone on in order for you to hear me. And Jesus has given us that template. He's given us that way to, to experience the power of the creator of the entire universe. The only question you have to answer now, now that you know that power is available to you, now that you know if you are willing to make that level of commitment to strive to be aware of the presence of God and the Holy Spirit throughout your day, what will you do with that power? Will you use it to serve yourself? Or will you use it to serve others? And just to answer that question, I want you to think about this. Jesus chose his betrayers. He used the power that he got from his communion with his Father to choose his betrayers. And the ultimate outcome of that choice was Jesus dying for you and me. The godly way to use the power is in service to others, in sacrifice to others, Jesus has shown us the way. The question is whether or not we'll follow it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this incredible power available to us. Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom and discernment in how we follow it. We pray, Father, that you give us deliberation in how we pursue it. And we pray, Father, that the answer to all these things would grow in us would nourish us, draw us closer to you, Father, and that we would use it for your glory and for your honor, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your church, and for the sake of each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.